I think like the pandemic accelerated so many things that were already there. Uh, and I think in our industry, the challenge, the biggest challenge with the pandemic is I'm I'm dealing with it right now, not not in the in the heart of the pandemic, and that is the way it has impacted the labor. Welcome back to Chat with Leaders, where we amplify the voices of leaders who use business and influence as a force for good. We believe that it's their example that will have a tremendous impact on our next generation of servant leaders who will carry us forward into our bright, sustainable future. Today, I chat with Hugh Henderson, the CEO of Capstone Hospice in Atlanta, Georgia, founded in 2015. Hugh began his hospice career in 1992 as a counselor with a local hospice organization. And after 24 years of seeing the industry from all different angles and serving in various hospice leadership positions with local, regional, and national companies, he saw an opportunity to start Capstone Hospice and do things differently as a value-based company focused on exceptional people delivering exceptional care. We talk about Hugh's story of building his successful business, defining his values, building a strong company culture around calling and purpose, how the need for hospice care has been skyrocketing in our society, and practical advice he'd have for other aspiring leaders who want to put purpose at the core of their business. Hugh is truly a leader who uses influence in business as a force for good, and you'll surely want to follow him. Enjoy. What do you wish everyone knew about palliative and hospice care services and the overarching why that drives your purpose as a leader? Oh, that is a great question. I would probably answer that with the thing that we struggle with the most, the, the major misconception that's out there with hospice care, and that uh, the average person on the street, Joe Public, thinks that hospice is it is for the last three days of life uh, when there's absolutely no hope, and we're just calling it quits. Um, that's what people think hospice is. And they also think it's a place, a place that you go. And so the biggest thing that I wish people knew is that hospice is, first of all, it's not a place, it's a concept. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a model of care. Um, and it is not for the last three days of life, but it's really for those who have a six month or less life expectancy as diagnosed by the uh, by the physician, but it could be much longer than six months. I mean, we've had that happen quite a bit. So, but more times than not, it's not that people are are referring to hospice too soon. It's that we are getting involved far too late. Just I was looking at some national things, and national statistics will tell you this, and this bears up in our program as well. That uh, you know, thirty percent of people that get hospice care get it for less than a week and 40% get it for less than two weeks. So almost half of the people getting hospice care are not even, are barely getting out of two weeks. And there is a direct correlation between the amount of time that you have with, to work with someone and, and the, the end user, the, the, the patient family experience is greatly enhanced by the more time that you have to work with people. You know, I find that this is such a ubiquitous experience, newsflash, we all have a limited time on this earth, and uh, it really is an important moment in our lives where we provide dignity and space to individuals and to their families who really 
need to have that care uh, in in the dignified way at the end of life. It's a, it's a hard space to be in though, right? Because nobody wants to address that reality of our mortality yeah. and getting to the end of life. Uh, wh- why did you first get into this business? And what do you think it is about your story or maybe your upbringing that, that made you kind of passionate about leading in this space? I've not been one of those, and and I think there's a mis, misconception out there. There is such a thing as a natural born leader. I I didn't like, I, I wasn't always at the the class president and all that kind of stuff. Um, but my parents were both educators, um, so public service, um, helping people was always just part of my upbringing and part of my household. Um, I originally thought I was going to go into education too and and be a teacher um but i what the subject that interested me was psychology and you can't really go in and do teach six classes a day on psychology uh you have to teach five classes of history and and one class of psychology and i, I didn't like other things as much to want to do that so um so i i moved away from that but uh eventually went into uh then i thought i was going to go into counseling so I have a master's degree in, in community counseling. And so I thought that I was going to do that, but it was, you know, there were a couple of factors at work that it, one, it's, it's hard to make a living um, doing counseling right out of school. Um, and I was newly married with a child and uh, needed to uh, have something to put some consistent money on the table. So I went into social work, but that's where I got, I started in the social work department with a hospice. And um, what drew me to hospice was I kind of did some, like so many things in life, it was a combination of several things. But, you know, one, I just did like a quick kind of self inventory and said, okay, what are you good at? And one of the things that I felt like I was pretty good at uh, was just staying calm in a crisis. And that's really what hospice is. You're just, you're going from one crisis to the next. So I said, okay, I could do that. I could, I could, I can, I'm okay in intense and crisis type situations. Um, I was, I had learned about hospice from one of my grad, grad school counseling classes. We took some learned some stuff about grief and bereavement and hospice was a component of that. And then uh, simultaneously, I was I was doing some uh, volunteer work with a AIDS hospice. Uh, this was the early 90s. Um, AIDS was rampant um, throughout Atlanta. And so um, I was working with some of the younger AIDS patients and this was an inpatient hospice. Uh, it was a like a house and so, and that felt good too. I mean, it felt, I, it felt like a good fit. So I thought I would, so that's when I just decided I'd start pursuing hospices. And I, I used this thing called the phone book and, uh, and started, <laughs> which nobody knows what that is now, uh, but started calling all the hospices in town, which, which at the time was only about six. And now there's 200 plus um, and, and started talking to them and finally got one that would give me an interview after about six months. But, um, but, you know, it turned out it was the right thing. One of the funny story with that is that when I was a freshman in college, I took one of those, those career tests that you take to tell you like what you would be set up for, what, what, what would be a good career path for you. So I got back my top three and this was, this was before hospice was really one of the options that was out there. It was so new to healthcare that people didn't really know. But my top three were um, hospital administrator, a pastor, 
and funeral director. <laughs> so the, the, if you think about what I do uh, in, in owning and running a hospice company, that uh, a hospital administrator, pastor, and funeral director, they kind of all, you know, that was a pretty accurate test. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with it. So that's great. And I, I've clearly God has gifted you with this, uh, this skill to, to be empathetic and to serve people in these critical times and junctures in their lives and, and going through these, these health situations, whether it was through the AIDS uh, circumstances in the 90s to where we're at today. And one thing that was really interesting that you mentioned was how the field of hospice care has grown. You said six to 200 plus in Atlanta alone. Yeah, um, It's just a number to throw out there. And maybe the number is even higher than that. And it's such a growing need. How has the field of hospice and palliative care, how has it fundamentally changed since you started to get into this space? And how has it shifted your worldviews through your experience of living through that change? Yeah. Um, and part of that has to do with why I, I started Capstone um, six and a half years ago. But uh, the probably the two most fundamental changes that have been in the industry have been... Um, what does your garden variety hospice patient look like? Uh, when I first started in 1992, there were uh, about 70% of hospice patients were cancer patients. And that was the overwhelming predominant um, admitting diagnosis. Uh, now the number one diagnosis is dementia. Uh, and dementia-related illnesses. And so people have expanded their definition of what is considered a terminal illness. And that's, that's, been, a, that's been a good thing. But, but going from being, now cancer is roughly, you know, almost 30% of, of hospice patients. So it's been a complete flip from being 70% to 30%. Um, likewise, the other big fundamental shift has been in um, the who's providing the care. Uh, when I first started, 70% of hospices were probably closer to 80% were not-for-profit. Now it's just the opposite, but 70% of, of hospices are for-profit and the other 30% uh, are not-for-profit. But um, what I find and so what, what has kind of shifted through those decades, uh, the last three decades has been from being privately owned independent organizations like what Capstone is, that's how hospice really organically started, to now it's more corporations, it's multi-site organizations, these large companies, many of which, if not most of which are publicly traded, um, so there is a responsibility to shareholders and that type of thing. Um, and that's not all bad. So I don't want to come across as, oh, I'm anti-corporate, I'm not, uh, no, no capitalism for me. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. There is some good with that, and, and it has had some positive impact on the, on the industry and in that it, it brought a level of operating discipline that was lacking and that people were just really sloppy, um, and, and it brought a level of and competition. I'm a big fan of competition. Competition makes everybody elevate their game and do better. So there have been some good things, but what I saw happening and what I personally experienced was it did become more and more about the numbers and what the, and like I said, you know, that 
if you've got an obligation to a shareholder versus if that's your ultimate person you're answering to, there's just no other way. To, it, it's going to impact how you how you act, how you behave, how you deliver your services. And everybody will will say, yeah, the patients and families are first. And and there are many that do live that. But but there are some that that when push comes to shove, we've we've got to protect. We've got to we got to we got to cut costs where we can, and and everything becomes a very metrics driven type of um, operation, and that works on an assembly line. It doesn't work, and when you're doing something as personal as hospice care, and so that was really the genesis behind starting Capstone was I wanted to get hospice back to what it originally was when I started privately owned company, independently run, that was flexible, that could respond to the needs of their community, that could adjust, and was always going to make decisions with the the best interest of the patient is going to be what, what basically drove every decision that was made. That's what I wanted to create. And I've I like to think that's what we've done here and created that type of culture. It doesn't mean that we have no fiscal discipline or that we're not worried about this. The, you know, we've, we still have to run a profitable organization here and, and that type of thing. But um, it's kind of like the same scenario of when push comes to shove and we've got to make a decision. It's where at Capstone, it's always going to be at the end of the day, what's in the best interest of that patient. It's not going to be, how much does it cost or how convenient is it? It's not cost or convenience. It's what does that patient and family need? So that's kind of, thanks for letting me preach, but, um, but yeah, that, that you can, you can probably hear some of my passion with it. You absolutely. And I've recently become involved pretty heavily on the leadership team of conscious capitalism in the Atlanta chapter and everything that you just described has kind of been codified through the book, Conscious Capitalism, which was written by um, John Mackey from the CEO of uh, Whole Foods and Rasha Sodia. Great book. And one of the key tenets of conscious capitalism is stakeholder orientation and not just thinking about your shareholders as the sole stakeholder in your business, but really thinking about all the people that you serve, uh, both internally, externally in the community uh, that impact your business, your supplier. So business is inherently good. Capitalism is inherently good uh, because it allows you to profit and elevate humanity through it. But if you're thinking consciously in your leadership and you're applying those tenets, uh, including things like purpose and higher level uh, leadership and uh, just being a little bit more conscious about those decisions you make around stakeholder orientation that it makes for better business in the industry that you serve. So you talked a little bit about your why uh, in, in 2015, but how did you go about specifically clarifying as a company and kind of codifying your own purpose, mission, vision, and and company values? Was it a workshop? Did you, you know, <laughs> how did you how did you go about that? Yeah. Well, I had I had the benefit of God had allowed me opportunities in my career to do a number of startups uh, for other organizations. So I knew kind of what was important when you're starting a new business and the kind of people you need to look for hiring right out of the gate. Um, so I kind of knew some and, and I knew like what the mechanics were of starting a hospice business, the things that you had to have because I'd done it. I mean, 
I, I will, as an aside, tell you it's a lot easier to do it with somebody else's money than to do it with your own money. <laughs> but um, but I knew what I needed to do. I knew, I knew that the what. Um, so that was just something that I, I knew the mechanics piece. Now the philosophy and the mission values and that type of thing. Um, there was a lot of time. Uh, I've spent a lot of time alone. Um, trying to really think this stuff through um, for your listeners. If they're not familiar with the Monastery of the Holy Spirit out in Conyers, great place to do that kind of stuff. And I, it's a silent uh, retreat. And so you can go out there and just really uh, get a lot of this type of stuff done. So I did that, came up with something. Uh, my faith is very important to me. So I was very familiar with creeds and things like that. And so I wanted to say, okay, what is, what's going to be my creed? What is the capstone creed? Meaning, what do we believe as an organization? And I came up with this list of about 12 things of just, some of them are pretty profound, I think, and some of them are just pretty basic. And, but I just went, I just started just reeling off, you know, okay, this is what I want my employees to believe. This is what, these are the things I want them to live out every day and just started jotting them down and that became the capstone creed and so now we it's just part of orientation it's hanging in our office framed and so that that's become part of the fabric of our culture now which is not you know by accident that's definitely by design but um but yeah so that was kind of i think it got, gave me something to kind of hang my ideas on uh you know having that type of thing Check out that monastery, that silence and that retreat. That sounds uh, very relaxing and, and also a great way to to stretch your mind beyond the the noise that we experience. Yeah. And every if you're an introvert, day. you'll love it uh, <laughs> <laughs> because it's uh, even the meals. You don't talk during the meals. There's no talking allowed. So wow. I mean, you don't have to go through the where are you from, what do you do for a living. You don't have to. You don't have to do anything. You just eat in silence and go back to your room well for anyone <laughs> so, that knows me as a podcast host or as a person they're going to know that not talking is going to be a little bit challenging but uh <laughs> but i do value and there i think that'll surprise a lot of people about me is that i do have a introverted side of me as well so that sounds sounds amazing you know i'd be remiss not to ask you how the pandemic uh impacted your business we all know how it just um really had a strong impact on particularly the elderly populations, but what would have been the greatest challenges that you see lying ahead of our society with respect to palliative and hospice care services that maybe came to light during the pandemic? I think like the pandemic accelerated so many things that were already there. Uh, and I think in our industry, the challenge the biggest challenge with the pandemic is I'm, I'm dealing with it right now not not in the in the heart of the pandemic and that is the way it has impacted the labor the challenges in the labor market right now it's this perfect storm of people not many workers and people demanding higher wages so your wages are like going through the roof and then you're having trouble finding people that's been probably one of the biggest challenges the pandemic has had on us. I mean, it's just what the, what the pandemic has caused in terms of just the, the labor market. You know, I'm in a more practical basis. I have company cars for some employees and I ordered two eight months ago. And then I just found out two days ago that the order was canceled by the manufacturer. They just 
not that it's delayed, it's just canceled. <laughs> so you can't get get things like that. So honestly, it's been kind of we managed the the pandemic okay. Um, it we had to get creative in how we did things because a lot of our business is in assisted living facilities and those things were on lockdown. But we were able to just really get creative and and kind of how we service people and it really emphasize the value of relationships. And so we didn't really pick up new business then, but man, it was the relationships that you had, you really got entrenched with those people because you were all in this together and you really worked hard with them. And so it just was a good reminder of just the value of just relationships and just making sure that you're investing in that relationship with people. And it's not just a transactional type of um, relationship that you have, but that it is one in which you're helping them see, hey, we are in this win-win relationship. We're helping each other and we're both trying to uh, accomplish the same purpose here. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I really see this growing need. My wife actually is in the process of looking into building a respite care facility around uh, helping care for those with dementia. And as you mentioned earlier, that's the most predominant reason why people are uh, finding their way into hospice care. And it just seems like the numbers from her research are really rising at a serious rate, almost concerning rate with the lack of people that are interested in geriatric care and that are pursuing these fields in the labor field. So I think that labor market was probably a problem based on the growing demand and need yeah, for it before yeah. the pandemic. And now you've got rising wages and it's harder to find people that are wanting to get into this field and maybe find themselves more called to it uh, for mm -hmm. something bigger than just the paycheck alone, although it's important that we pay our people well. But uh, but yeah, what are, what are your thoughts in terms of just that growing demand and and maybe how the way that we care for people with dementia and those needing these types of services mm -hmm. will look like in the future? I do agree with you that the I think the labor issue uh, within healthcare in general was a growing issue, um, but the pandemic accelerated things greatly. Um, so, and I think we've always known that particularly in hospice nursing, that we have an aging workforce. There's a lot of, cause a lot of people go into hospice later in life. I mean, it's really, and so we have an older workforce because think about it. I mean, most kids right out of nursing school, they're not thinking, Oh, I really want to go take care of the dying. <laughs> um, it's not, you know, their, their first job out of school. So, but, um, but I do think it. a lot of those people that were laid off or just got frustrated and decided, I, I think the early retirement kind of kicked in with that. So that is going to be a continued challenge. I'm, I'm hopeful, though, that everything I read uh, from a leadership standpoint and you know, looking at the, the generation, the Gen Zers and the next generation to come is about that what's really important with these people is having a job with purpose and meaning um, and having something that they can go home at the end of the day and say, yeah, I made the world a better place. Well, I can check every box with that. I mean, this is, that is the number one thing that we've got. I mean, this is, if you want to make a difference, you work in hospice care, you will see the difference immediately on people's faces and you will experience that. And so, you know, talk about having purpose and making the world a better place. So I think we're in a good place for meeting that need. 
we've just got to, I just hope that more and more people go into healthcare and go into nursing. You know, maybe a, a volatile economy will help because healthcare is pretty steady. I mean, people are always going to get sick and they're always going to have needs. And so uh, that's, that's not going to change. Stage advice for any aspiring next-gen leaders that wants to create social impact through their business and influence of, of create purpose within mm -hmm. your organization and, and make it a place where people can have that impact as, as employees. Because yeah. we see that all the time with Gen Z, and that's what gives me the greatest hope is just the... Um, the way that Gen Z is responding to the world we live in and the amount of social entrepreneurship we're seeing and just people that want to work at companies that are making a fundamental difference to our society and in the environment and, and everything else. And that's why I love Conscious Capitalism and B Corps and any company that's uh, just very purpose-driven like yours. Uh, and it's a great model of leadership. So any other advice that you would have practically for those next gen leaders that are uh, trying to make a difference through their business? Um, let that passion be what's driving you to start the business in the first place. The passion for not, I want to be my own boss or I want to be wealthy. Um, don't let that be what's driving your decision to be, to start your own business. It needs to be the passion of, hey, I do want to have this type of work environment. For I, I want to create this type of environment for people to work in. And I think we can make the world a better place because that's contagious. People will pick up on that. They will gravitate to that. And the other advice, I would, so I would just say, check yourself, look in the mirror, make sure that that is the reason why you're doing this. Because you will, you will fade quickly if it's not, uh, because it's too hard. Uh, and then... The other thing I would say is find your support network, find a mentor, maybe somebody who's been there and done that and can help you avoid making some costly mistakes. I just, I tell people, I, I'm not the smartest person in the room by any stretch. I just learn from my mistakes and I make a lot of them. But when I do, I try not to do it again. <laughs> and so I'm just old enough now to where I've made a lot of mistakes. And so I can help people learn from those mistakes that I made. So uh, try to find somebody with that type of attitude that wants to just, hey, just say, hey, I don't want you to do the same thing I did. You can make a better, you can make this a whole lot easier on yourself. Great way to close out. Great advice. If people wanted to learn more about Capstone, your leadership, where would you direct them online? Uh, CapstoneHospice.com. And that is uh, the best place to learn more about us. Great. Well, we will certainly be including that in the show notes. And Hugh, it was such a gift of time. We so appreciate you sharing it with us and our listeners today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Well, that wraps up another edition of Chat with Leaders. Thank you for investing your time with us today. If you haven't already, we would be grateful if you shared this episode with a friend and rated it on Apple or wherever you get your podcast so we can pass down the wisdom from our guests to more aspiring leaders. If you're interested in launching a professional podcast to grow your business, we would love to help. Check out chatwithleaders.com for more information and feel free to reach out by emailing team at chatwithleaders.com. Thanks again and go be a leader worth following.